Hey guys, it's Ed. Before we get started, I want to share one quick announcement with you. During my last episode with Jillian, you may remember she and I were discussing our favorite books and she casually mentioned that I should start a book club. And not long after publishing that episode, I heard from an unbelievable number of y'all encouraging me to actually do it. So last week, I set up the webpage and figured out how to do it, and the Mountain and Prairie Book Club is now fully operational. Go to mountainandprairie.com slash book club to find out all the details. Our first book is going to be American Wolf by Nate Blakesley. If you listen to the episode with Dan Flores, you'll remember that he said American Wolf is one of his favorite books about the American West, which is quite an endorsement. Dan is the author of Coyote America and American Serengeti, which are two of my all-time favorites, and I know a ton of you guys have bought and read those as well and loved them. I'm about halfway through American Wolf, and I've been amazed at how good it is. It's fun and easy to read, and so far it's been completely balanced and explores all sides of the wolf issue, which I appreciate. We've already had some good comments over on the online book club forum, so I encourage you to go check that out. Um, Wolves touch almost every aspect of life in the West, from hunting to agriculture, conservation, ecology, the governments involved, tourism, sociology, environmentalism, so many aspects. So I thought this would be a, a really good way to get the book club started. So again, just go to mountainandprairie.com slash book club to find out more and sign up. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the book. Now, here's the podcast. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Robert Crafell. Robert is a U.S. Forest Service smoke jumper, a member of the elite team of wildland firefighters who parachute into remote burning landscapes to control some of our country's most intense forest fires. Prior to joining the smoke jumpers, Rob was a fish biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where he worked on restoring several species of fish to the lower Colorado River system. You may also know Rob as the husband of my previous guest, Jillian Lukuski, and if so, you've likely admired countless stunning photographs of them fishing, hunting, and exploring far-flung corners of the American West. Growing up in Northern California, Rob was always focused on pushing himself hard in the outdoors, learning new skills, and establishing a sense of self-sufficiency in wild places. As a teenager, he taught himself to fish and hunt, and early in his career, he learned how to operate heavy machinery on his own while rebuilding a remote government satellite station in the Arizona desert. Rob's intense curiosity and action-oriented mindset have allowed him to build a life centered around adventure and rugged landscapes, while simultaneously being of service to our country and a true steward of the forests of the West. Because Rob has almost no social media presence, not many people outside his immediate circle of friends and family truly grasp what a unique life he leads nor do they understand the vital role he played in the creation of Jillian's blog and jewelry business, The Noisy Plume. Rob and Jillian are true partners in every sense of the word, and their approach to business, adventure, and living an authentic, purpose-driven life can be instructive for couples and individuals alike. They pursue their goals as a team and have sacrificed much along the way to turn their dreams into realities. Rob is a perfect guest for this podcast because his career and interests touch on almost everything that fascinates me. 
the West, adventure, service, creativity, hunting, fishing, travel, conservation, ecology, and plenty more. We obviously cover a lot in this episode, including the ins and outs of his becoming a smoke jumper and his scariest experience while fighting fires. We discuss his work as a fish biologist and how he and Jillian spent a year living in the middle of the Arizona desert in a rat-infested trailer. Rob also has a very unique educational background, which we discuss in detail. And of course, we talk about the creation of the noisy plume and how he and Jillian's vision for the project has evolved over time. And for a podcast that's always heavy on book recommendations, this one is especially chock full of good titles. This is a great episode, so I know you'll enjoy it. As I mentioned, Rob isn't on social media, but you can catch glimpses of him every now and then on Jillian's Instagram. So be sure to follow her at The Noisy Plume. Here you go, Robert Crafell. So when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Kind of depends on the... uh length of the conversation I'm going to have with the person and who I'm talking to. You know, I'll typically start off with just saying, I am a wildland firefighter. I do wildland firefighting. And if, you know, they're interested or goes further, I may get into specifics that I'm a smoke jumper within the wildland firefighting community. And if it keeps going even further after that, I'll probably tell them that, you know, so half the year I'm a smoke jumper. The other half I'm semi-retired and do a lot of hunting and help, uh, run a small farm my wife and I own and help with our online business that we both own. Well, I think the first thing I want to talk about is the the smoke jumping. That is, uh, as I would mentioned to you, I read Young Men in Fire when I was uh, in high school and I've been obsessed with it ever since. Can you just talk a little bit about smoke jumping and, and how, how you ended up in that world? Well, you know, the interesting thing is I actually, Young Men in Fire was a pretty critical stepping stone to how I got into smoke jumping as well. Cool. So when I was in high school, same thing, I read that book. It was actually my grandpa's, and I saw it on the coffee table, read it. And, yeah, I just got really excited about it because I, even at that point, I really loved uh, the idea of kind of like pitting myself against um, a force, you know, like a war type thing or mm-hmm. nature or some sort of adventure where you're kind of putting your life on the line. So I was really attracted to it, and I read that book and was really excited about it. So from you know high school, I knew at some point I wanted to get into firefighting and uh, ultimately smoke jump. So yeah, when I was 18, I actually started applying to become a smoke jumper. And at that point, you know, I had no idea. I was totally underqualified. It would have never got hired. But you know, I didn't know any better and just started applying at that point. Um, and then, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go keep going, keep going. Oh. Yeah, so then, you know, as life turned out, I ended up doing a lot of different things, went to several different schools, uh, ended up getting into fish biology, doing some other things. But when I was young, I think 19 and 20, I, since I wanted to get into fire, I got a job in Sealy Lake, Montana on an engine crew. So I did that for a year. And then a couple of years later, I got a job in Zion National Park on an engine crew. And so I kind of got my feet in the door with firefighting. And then after doing a whole bunch of other things, uh, I was getting a little older in firefighting terms. I was 28, and I decided I still wanted to be a smoke jumper. So I quit the job I was doing at that point and got hired as a hotshot, which is another type of firefighting. Did that for a few years, and after I got enough experience hotshotting, I finally got a position smoke jumping and North Cascades, which is in Winthrop, Washington. Mm-hmm. So, 
when you're when you're applying to smoke jumping school, what are they looking for? I mean, obviously some sort of you know firefighting experience, but but what makes an application stand out from all the rest? Because I imagine it's you know, like if you're in the Navy, everybody wants to be a Navy SEAL. If you're if you're a wildland forest fighter, you want to be a smoke jumper. So how do they even begin to weed out people and, and get through those applications to, to find their ideal candidates? Well, I mean, you're exactly right, because there's about 400 smoke jumpers total. And, you know, for each position, there's literally hundreds of applicants. So it is trying to, to stand out in some way. And most uh, guys you know, are going to have probably six years experience or so. And that's not necessary. The beautiful thing I like about smoke jumping is the smoke jumping community is looking for just innovative, uh, self-motivated, just great people. And so there's not necessarily a set of rules that are always followed for the guys they hire. If, if you know the people who are hiring see potential in somebody, they'll very often give that person a shot. So, you know, the real key ingredient is just getting the basic fire experience so you're at least qualified. And then just persistence, uh, keeping at it, making it clear that you really uh, want this or it's something you want to do. You know, talking to the right people and just keeping at it. I mean, that's really the guys who succeed just keep at it. Um, and I guess also they all have awesome references. So all their previous experience they've been doing a great job at. And they keep at it and they got that experience level. Uh, and all that coupled together and if you, if you keep at it, you know, anybody can typically get it if they just stick with it and they have the proper experience and references. When you when you mention references, you know, obviously you need to be strong and you need to be fit and, you know, brave and all that kind of stuff. But how is there is a big component of that how well you work with the other members of the team and, and what kind of leader you are and, and just what kind of teammate you are? I think it's all of that. You know, it's also you're just looking for, you know, guys with upstanding integrity you know, you can count on to work really hard and you're going to be there and have your back when you get in maybe an uncomfortable situation and kind of going back to, you know, things that folks are looking for when they're hiring rookies. It's kind of interesting. I got hired and I wasn't your conventional hire in that I was a fish biologist before I was a smoke jumper and I had all sorts of experience doing random other things. So the folks that hired me actually were really attracted to the fact that I was certified on heavy equipment, I could do all sorts of building, I'd run a, saddle, uh, a fish plantation by myself. So, so what they saw was the ability uh, of someone who could work by themselves independently and problem solve. And so that actually got me hired even more so than the actual firefighting experience I had. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned when you were young, you were always looking for uh – adventures or things that would kind of pitch you against nature or challenges or dangerous type things. What, what do you, where do you think that came from? Are your parents like that? Do you have any brothers or sisters that are like that? Have you, have you always been like that ever since you were really, really little? Well, I don't really think of myself as a very brave person, but I definitely have always wanted to live life and yeah, that, and that's where that idea of wanting to just put myself up against nature. Like the two things I kind of remember thinking about were like, okay, joining the Marines or firefighting. One, you have to kill people. The other one, you don't. And it kind of uh, sided with the firefighting. But I, I did crave that kind of adventure. And I don't know, have you ever read uh, Typhoon by Joseph Conrad? No, I have not. Oh, well, I remember that book is outstanding. I love it. 
I read that, I don't know if I was 18, somewhere about that time. And that book, it's like the perfect book for a young guy because it's all about just living life to the fullest, like taking the marrow out of life and just you know, unabashedly going out there and doing it. And I read that book and it had a huge impression on me that I just wanted to go out and try to live life that way. And the problem I had, even from a young age, was, and even now it's still my problem, is it's not what do I want to become or end up doing. It's that there's a hundred different things I want to do and how can I do them all? So like smoke jumping was never really like, oh, this is a career I want to have. It was just, that's something I want to do before I die. And, and I think I got sidetracked with the question you actually asked, but no, that's fine. That's, that's the way I operate, man. We'll, we'll go all over the place. <laughs> um, so I want to I want to talk about where you grew up, and then then we're going to come back to smoke jumping because I think I think the way you grew up and the way you taught yourself a lot of different things um, kind of you know sh- it all makes sense when you're looking back to this this career you've built. Um, so where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Grass Valley, California. So it's Northern California, east of San Francisco, kind of near Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. and so it's the gold country of California, that 49er country. So you have the pine trees with the oak trees, kind of that mixed savanna. And my parents actually moved there in the early 70s. So yeah, I was born and raised there, native Nevada County. And Got it, got it. And Jillian was telling me that you pretty much completely taught yourself how to fly fish and bird hunt and big game hunt. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and first of all, what attracted you to that and then the, the process of teaching yourself? I don't really know what attracted me. Like my folks tell me, you know, when, I don't know, I was five or six, go into some pond and I saw some trout down there and just was like mesmerized by these fish in the lake. So I loved fishing as long as I can remember. So I don't even remember the attraction. And my dad, and my dad's an awesome man, he, you know, had done some fishing and him and I started fishing together. And that's what we did together. We do a lot of backpacking and fishing together. So, you know, we both learned fly fishing together. Um, but my dad had no interest in any hunting at all. His father had done a bunch of bird hunting. And I remember, you know, seeing pheasant tails in my grandfather's place. And you know, I wanted to bird hunt as long as I can remember, too. It was just like the next thing I wanted to do after fishing. But my dad, uh, yeah, he just didn't have any interest in that. So, you know, kind of the self-learning part came. My dad and I learned the fishing together. And then what I really remember learning is starting to get into hunting. And I knew I really wanted to do upland hunting. And, yeah, it was just really just a matter of trial and error. I just remember going out around our place. Luckily, we lived in an area which is kind of oak savanna, so there's a lot of quail around there. But I remember just walking miles and miles and having no idea what I was looking for until I'd randomly run into a group of quail and they'd fly. And it took me, you know, years actually just to get the connection like, oh, okay, it's a group of blackberry bushes that cover near a creek. That's where the quail are. So it was just a really slow process to learn. Um, and obviously, if I would have had somebody helping me out, it would have been a much quicker process to start to figure that out. 
Yeah, you know, it would have been quicker, but you wonder if you would have established such a solid foundation that you established by having to really do it on your own and trial and error and just take that kind of long winding approach to figuring it out. Because if somebody was just, I know when somebody just tells me how to do something, I don't learn it as well as if I have to go through the pain of figuring it out on my own. So, you know, who knows? That makes sense. And I am a huge proponent and I certainly learn really well just by having to do things like I'm all about just empowering like kids or anybody just, you know, that's how I learned how to run heavy equipment was just got on it. I had, you know, issues or pond levees blowing out and just having to fix it. And so I think that there is a, you're right. There's a great, it is a great way to learn just by doing. Yeah. It it can be extremely frustrating. I think in this day and age with the internet and with any information or any answer to any question in the entire world at your fingertips, there's this tendency to want to find the shortcut or want to have somebody tell you how to do it. But there's just not, there's nothing that beats just straight up time and, and experience. I like to surf. And th- one of the things I like about it is there's no easy way to figure it out. There's no little hack or whatever they call it. It's just, you got to sit out there on the board for a damn long time and figure out how those waves work before you have any shot of it. At least yep. if you're a subpar athlete like me, you do. <laughs> um, so so where did you end up going to college? I started going to college. Well, I was not really a good student in high school. Um, I remember sophomore year, I think I had like two D's or three D's. So I remember shortly after that point, my dad sitting me down and having a conversation about how I had already limited a lot of my options of what I could do with my life. So I remember him telling me about the military as an option or just, you know, trades, that kind of thing, because I didn't have the grades to uh, make it work. But I remember that conversation annoyed me. So the next year, just to prove a point, I ended up actually giving straight A's. I was coming from like three B's to straight A's. But I was actually smart in that I took uh, like stream biology, which is all about fly fishing, timber cruising. And they were all like, you know, rather than the chemistry that my friends were taking and like creative writing. So I just took classes that were fun. Mm -hmm. And so I made that point to... Just proved to my dad. But at the end of the day, at the uh, when I graduated, I still maybe barely had a 3.0 ga- average if I was lucky. So I didn't have you know as many options as some kids. So I knew I wanted to go to Alaska because my whole life had really revolved around fishing up to that point. So I had to go to Alaska. And in Sitka, Alaska, there at that time there was a college called Sheldon Jackson, mm-hmm. and it's no longer in business. It's gone bankrupt. But they were there, and it fit the bill because it was in Alaska with fishing, and they were so desperate for kids they'd take anybody. So that's where I started off. <laughs> um, so how long were you there? So I spent one year there, and I yeah I didn't do the conventional route, so it's kind of a long journey here. No, that's good. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> I spent one year there, and uh, when I was up there, I decided I wanted to go to a dedicate one year to like a Bible college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up in a Christian family. My parents, uh, they're pretty neat people. They, you know, were born in the early forties. So they moved to San Francisco, uh, right during the whole sixties alternative movement. And they were part of that whole movement. So they had, you know, incredible stories from that era. And they kind of had a like on the road to Damascus, um, conversion 
in San Francisco in the late 60s. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, it's pretty neat stuff. I mean, um, you, you know, and I never experienced any of that because, you know, they have these uh, dramatic stories of their life totally changing and, you know, supernatural. Th- you know, they have a really unique story. And to this day, their faith is, you know, the most important thing in, in life to them. So, you know, I never had that experience. Uh, so I decided, you know, that year up in Alaska that I wanted to just spend one year kind of studying in a more formal setting Christianity, uh, just because just to see kind of what it was about and to understand it a little bit more. So at any rate, I decided I also wanted to go to Montana because of fishing. Yeah. So I applied to this little school in Montana called Montana Wilderness School of the Bible. And I ended up only being there for two months, uh, which is kind of another story. But yeah, I was there for a very short time. Wait, that I understand. Thing. I understand there is an interesting story there. So I want to, I want to hear why were you only there two months? Okay. Well, <laughs> that was a really fun spot. But anyway, I, I was at, like I mentioned, I, I just wanted to live life and be out and experience it. And it's kind of a crapful tradition. My, that's my last name. My dad and my uncle, uh, you know, they have all sorts of stories of hitchhiking all over the U S riding trains, um, you know, just doing neat stuff and just, you know, my uncle rafted the Yukon river by himself. Wow. Uh, just, the, and my dad, they just have all sorts of great stories like that. So, you know, I really wanted to be out there doing the same kind of stuff. And it's not that they influenced me. It was just, I, like I said, I read that book typhoon and it was, that's just how I wanted to live. So anyway, uh, in Montana, I decided I was going to ride a train, go train hop. And so I ended up going to northern Montana in, in Shelby, Montana, which is up by Glacier, catching a train out there, riding it out to the Dakotas. And I had a buddy with me who I actually had convinced to come do this with me. We hung out in North Dakota, ended up coming back. And at the end of the trip, the train was going through Shelby, Montana, which is where we originally got on. Mm-hmm. And we needed to get off. And I don't remember... It is, but it was, it, it was, you know, probably two in the morning when it's coming through Shelby. And I remember getting down on, you know, there's the ladder, which you can uh, get on the car with. Yeah. Getting on the bottom rung and looking down and the ground is just flying past. <laughs> thinking to myself, this train is going way too fast. I'm not going to jump. And then from that moment, I don't remember anything until I'm just in this field and it's middle of the night, walking around and thinking, oh, my head kind of hurts and my back hurts. I'm going to just take a nap. So I took a nap in the field and I wake up, I don't know, 12 hours later. And I had a concussion, so luckily I did wake up. Wake up the next day and say to myself, oh, I would really like to go get a Mc, uh, burger from McDonald's. I'm gonna go McDonald's. <laughs> so I start randomly walking around looking for McDonald's. And I see a gas station, so I go to the gas station and say, excuse me, I'm looking for McDonald's. And I have no idea what I look like. Um, I, 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 my whole head is gashed open. Uh, I have blood everywhere. And, you know, come to find out later, I have six compression fractures in my back, so my back's broken. Um, but, you know, none of this is registered to me. So these folks in the gas station, of course, just panic, and they call the police. So then the police come pick me up. Uh, luckily, I'm in such bad shape. They don't take me to jail. They just take me to the hospital. 
And when I was released from the hospital, I went back to the Bible school and was told to leave. And that was the end of my time there. So what was the problem? I mean, it was was it the actual act of the jumping on the train that they had the problem with? I mean, uh, well, you know, I, in, in all due respect, that was, it's a really neat little spot. Um, I just, I think I, they were certainly really scared. Um, and, and I, th- I think it was probably the illegality of it. Sure. It's just not what they really were wanting in, out of their students. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure there was more to it than just that. And if I'm honest, you know, I had already been pushing the limits a lot. Yeah. So it, it wasn't just that. It's like, oh, this is Robert. He's already a little more of a problem than we typically would like out of our students. So this is kind of the uh, last thing. Just not yeah. a not a good fit is what we'll call that. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it not a good fit. <laughs> but it all, worked, it all works out cause down the road because of that. Uh, I ended up meeting Jillian in New Zealand. So it worked out. Oh, yeah. That's what I say about when I met my wife. Like, whatever... Anything that happened before that, I think I was 29, anything before age 29, it, it had to happen that way, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the that's the right way to look at it. So one more thing about that. What kind of recovery was involved from the, the broken back? Uh, well, I went home my, back to my parents' place, and I, it was about six months, but, you know, six weeks of not doing anything. You just can't move, really. And I remember being so restless. I made, I had a BMX bike, so I hung it up in the garage and put like a little uh, friction device on it. So like a improv stationary bike. Nice. If I could ride that in the basement, because, you know, at that point I was doing a lot of exercise, running a ton and uh, weights and whatnot. So to go from that to doing nothing was pretty hard. Oh, um, yeah. And so, yeah, I had to stay. So I was back at home and uh, during that time I went to a little community college in California which was a steal of $19 a credit, which is amazing. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I did that uh, for a while, you know, in between that time until I actually got my first fire job right after that. Uh, yeah, then I got my first fire job in Sealy Lake, Montana, and went off and did that for a while. Came back from that, and then I decided, oh, I still wanted to try to commit a little bit of time to studying Christianity in the Bible and the first spot didn't work out. So I'm going to apply to a school called Cape and Ray, which was in New Zealand. And same thing, fishing. I wanted to go over there and fish. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go over there and fish for a couple months before school started. And then I wanted to go to this little school for uh, a few months. And Cape and Ray is kind of a neat organization. They were started after World War II for like displaced Germans to go to to kind of find identity and recover. Mm-hmm of a new organization so i went there fished new zealand and met jillian at that little school we were both over there traveling and i met her there oh okay all right that makes sense yeah yeah very cool um so then at some point you ended up at, at wheaton college is that correct yeah so after some more hiatus and just going off and doing other things i ultimately transferred into wheaton um and like I told you earlier, in high school, I had terrible grades. But in college, because I was paying for it, uh, I had a totally different mindset and my grades were great. And Wheaton accepted me based on those grades and kind of as a diversity hire just because I wasn't the typical student. Sure. So yeah, I went there and graduated, finished my last two years at Wheaton. Got it. I love winding stories like that. You know, it, I think sometimes people uh, – 
people think you just need to go to one school and, and push through. But so most of the most interesting people I've met have a winding story that is not just typical show up, be there four years and leave. I think uh, I love those stories. I think somebody should write a book about stories like that because it's almost guaranteed that people like that are going to have interesting lives, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing for me was some kids, you know, love school, but even in high school, you know, I, I loved college, but to me, it was always a burden in that there's so many other things I'd rather be doing. So like sp- uh, spring break came or summer break. And the reason I kept like leaving for a while is I wanted to do other things. I wanted to go on motorcycle trips or travel or just explore a fish. Like there's so much, uh, yeah, so much other life that I wanted to do and school just kind of got in the way. So how soon after school did you begin work as a fish biologist? Jillian and I had, um, we actually got married my last semester of school. We eloped in Reno. So her family didn't know. Uh, my parents accidentally found out because they found the receipt in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. How'd that go over? How'd that go over with both, both sets? Oh, uh, well, my dad, uh, called me into the garage because we were visiting him and asked me and I don't remember what I said, but I don't think I told him. Uh, so I must've lied to him, but I can't really lie to my dad. So I had to call him. We, uh, a few hours later, Jillian and I left. I called him and told him my parents wanted Jillian and I to come home. And I think they were kind of pushing for us to get it annulled because they didn't know how serious we were at that time. Uh, but they agreed not to tell anybody unless asked. My dad, you know, they wouldn't lie, but they would keep the secret. And Jillian's parents, the funny part about that is I had already asked George, that's Jillian's dad, if I could ask Jillian to marry me. And he had said, you can ask her, but you cannot marry her, which is kind of a weird answer. So I knew that was going to be a, an awkward conversation. Uh, so, yeah, like four months after we were married – uh, and I graduated, Jillian and I got a job in Alaska, uh, being hiking guides up there. Uh-huh. So the time had come to tell George. So I called him up and said, Hey George, uh, I know you said I couldn't marry your daughter, but I actually already have. <laughs> and it was just silent for a while. And yeah, he was pretty good about it, but, uh, he still gives me a bad time about it. Did he ever explain wh- what was behind the, uh, you can ask, but you can't do it comment? No, not really. I need to ask him that. <laughs> I'll tell you, I have a daughter and, and that's, those are the kind of answers I'm going to give any guy who's hanging around just very weird kind of unsettling answers. I think that's a good policy as a dad. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so I want to hear about your work as a, as a fish biologist, because that seems, that seems super interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up doing that, how you ended up doing that and some of the projects you worked on? You know, originally, like kind of we've been talking here, my whole life revolves so much around fishing. I went to Sheldon Jackson for fisheries. And, you know, the first thing I did when I got to Sitka is I got a job at the fish hatchery there. So I already had been building experience in fish hatcheries, you know, like fish experience. Yeah. Um, so everything kind of revolved. And, you know, I, I, it wasn't until, you know, I could drive and got into my upper teens that I started to get into bird hunting and then later into life, big game hunting. So my whole life had kind of been focused towards uh, fisheries, you know, and my degree from Wheaton was environmental science, but, you know, fisheries is kind of where I wanted to go. So, you know, Jill and I are at this point are married, we're leaving Alaska, and I'm applying to different jobs, and there's this random job in Parker, Arizona, 
which is the hottest spot in Arizona, low desert, Mojave Desert. And I applied there, and a couple months later, I get a call, and it's an interview. And the interview starts off with not like anything about fish or you know, probing questions like that. It's just, how do you feel about rattlesnakes? <laughs> Are you okay with scorpions? How about rats and mice? And, you know, I answer, as soon as they start talking this way, the job sounds awesome. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You were probably like, yes, this is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, it was a job that nobody else, they could get nobody else to do. Uh, and what it ended up being was it was a satellite base from a, from a, another fish hatchery down there. And it, so my boss was about 180 miles from me. And it was in Parker, Arizona, 10 miles south of Parker on an Indian reservation. And what I was managing were grow out ponds. So you take really small fish and you put them in these ponds and get them up to size. Mm -hmm. I was managing grow out ponds for the razorback suckers and primarily bony tail chub, which are both indigenous fishes of the Colorado river system. Yep. Uh, And both of them, you know, especially bony tail chub were, you know, they were down to just hardly any of those fish left in the world until they got the brood stock. And what happened is after they dammed the Colorado so many times, uh, every time they dammed, you know, Lake Mojave or one of those big reservoirs, it flooded a whole bunch of terrain. And those fishes actually had kind of a boom because originally they used to spawn in, when the Colorado would flood all the time. Mm-hmm. They had this big boom of fish. Uh, and then ever since the reservoirs were, were stable and the water's not flooding anymore, there's been no um, reproduction since then. And these fishes of the Colorado are all old, long-lived fish. So, you know, they could live 60 to 100 years. Oh, wow. So, you know, this all happened in the 40s, 50s. And so now we're at the point, uh, this is, you know, early 2000s, that most of these fish are getting really old. They're all dying out and there's no reproduction happening anymore. And that's where these grow-out facilities came. And so the place I was managing, the idea was, okay, I take young bony tail chub that we raise in captivity and get them up to, say, 12, 13 inches so we could put them into the reservoirs in the river where uh, striped bass, they'll be too big for bass to eat. Because that was the main thing is anything, anything that was reproducing, even if it's happening, is being predated by uh, bass. So got it, got it. So that, that was the idea was to do that. And this facility down there uh, had pretty much had failure after failure. It had been operated for a few years. And the main problem they were having is you know, they put guys out there they're by themselves. They got lonely. They'd start drinking, and nothing ever happened. And so maybe the best year, they had produced a couple thousand fish, and it had just gone abandoned. So when Jillian and I showed up to Achihanya, that's what it was called. It's just this uh, middle of the desert, out there in the uh, alfalfa desert country of Lower Colorado. You pull up, and the whole facility had been abandoned. So there's salt cedar, which is probably 12 feet tall, just covering everything. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's supposed to be a parking lot and gravel. All the ponds haven't been used for years, so they're falling to pieces. We walk into the trailer, and all the windows are broken out. It's a single wide, and there's just, you know, covered, covered in, like, rat crap and uh, mouse poop. Oh, wow. Just you know, covered everywhere, like nobody's been in it in years. Jillian, at this point, is just bawling. She's already crying. And this, and this is my supervisor went down with me. They kept talking the whole way, like, tried to prep us for how bad it was going to be. So... Yeah, we went down there, and you know, I saw this and was just as excited as peach pie. <laughs> just like this is gonna be fun, uh, and you know, there was an old bulldozer there, a backhoe, a loader, dump truck. I just saw these toys to play with too, and so 
you know, really that job just started the whole first year or the first couple months was nothing but cleaning up, like, uh, yeah, fixing problems, cleaning it up, uh, knocking down all the salt cedar. It just was a, you know, I was working, yeah, 80 hours a week, just, just trying to bring it back from the land. Did, did you just love it? I mean, were, were you loving it the whole time or were there, um, were there times that it was extremely frustrating and lonely or was, were the frustrating and lonely parts in the grand scheme of things, what made it rewarding? Well, you know, I had Jillian there. It would have been a lot harder if it was just me. Yeah. And Jillian, because we eloped, uh, didn't have a green card, so she couldn't work. Uh, and she wasn't silversmithing at that point, so she just would help me um, hang out and we'd paint together. She'd help me on projects. But no, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's like any man's young guy's dream. It's yeah. just like pioneering. Like you go out, you got to tame the land. And, you know, and I had all these toys to play with and I had a budget, um, a pretty substantial budget to, you know, do projects. So, and you know, the, my managers wanted me happy. So they totally gave me the go ahead to renovate the trailer, build decks, put awnings up. And, you know, so I got to just figure out and learn all these skills, life skills on somebody else's dollar and play with toys I never would have been able to otherwise. Well, I had a, I loved it. I had a great time. Looking back on that, time in your life and in your marriage what what do you think you you learned from that i mean obviously the the self-sufficiency and learning by doing but were there any other lessons that you that you take now that you've got some distance from that time well like you said the most obvious things are just the um problem solving the figuring things out the just you just got to try just diving into projects and uh, being resourceful, that kind of stuff. Because on a daily basis, there are things like that would happen. Um, like, you know, I remember the first time I filled up the ponds. Every one of these ponds, because it's bentonite clay, so when it dries out, it cracks. So every time you fill up one of the, a new pond, it's going to just keep blowing out and blowing out, and then you have a huge flood. So, you know, my first experience with heavy equipment was, oh, my gosh, the pond is now flooding our driveway. And, you know, trying to go out there and fix these levees that are breaking without falling into the pond. And... Uh, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I thought it was great. I learned so much just by doing. Um, but also, yeah, you know, I guess, and I maybe I already knew at this point, but just kind of the whole idea of taking one step at a time and just, you know, if you look, try, tried to, if you got daunted by the how much there was to do, it would be overwhelming. But just taking one little task at a time and just continually taking a small little piece was the way to, was the way to go. And that's kind of how I approach all my projects now. And how how long had you and Julian been married at that point? Uh, one year. So how was that? How was that for uh, you know fairly early in the marriage? The reason I ask is because when my wife and I got married, we spent our first year of marriage in in Central America because my wife had a job down there, and it you know it was this really kind of in a lot of ways intense experience because I didn't have any any experience living internationally or really even traveling internationally, and I, I thought it was just a really cool way to start our marriage because it was very simple you know we had three plates three cups three forks you know and then we come back here a year later and we got you know all this stuff from crate and barrel that everybody gave us and you're like do we really need 25 plates you know that kind of thing and i thought it was just a really awesome way to kind of set the tone early on in a marriage it kind of strips away a lot of the the nonsense and it's just the two of you did you have a similar experience my experience is, you know, is very similar to yours in that, you know, it's kind of the whole biblical idea of leave and cleave and 
I, I, I think there's some merit to that and that, you know, none of our families were there. We were totally dependent on each other. It's a new situation. Having to learn how to problem solve together, you know, take care of all these disasters. I mean, most of the time when I had these disasters or trying to figure things out, you know, I had Jillian right out there with me, directing me, helping me out. So it really, I think, established the idea of working together as a team, uh, which, you know, I think is translated down the road when we started developing her business and following other dreams, like working together to accomplish couple dreams or individual dreams separately, but supporting each other. Yeah. And so I think that's a good way to lead into start the starting of, of Jillian's business. And she, she mentioned this in, in our conversation and she talked about how, you know, what a big role you played in it, but I'd love to hear kind of your side of things because obviously you're, you're not uh, big on the social media stuff and you're, you appear in some of the photos and stuff, but I think a lot of people don't fully understand how much you're involved in that business and, and what a, a um, you know, equal partner you are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Our, you know, entire like marriage kind of like started Achihanyo. Like we've been tag team and are working as a team together and everything. Like, and you know, at Achihanyo fish hatchery, Jillian was right there helping me. And like I said, she didn't have a green card when we first got married. So she couldn't work and there was a huge burden on me to make money. Um, but we were already setting the foundation for future goals we had set. And so one of the great things about the fish hatchery job was, uh, you know, we lived in that terrible trailer, uh, but pretty much all expenses were covered. So we were able to save, you know, the majority of my small income, which ultimately gave us some of the money to start investing into her business and ultimately our first down payment on a house. So, you know, we were already making sacrifices that were paying dividends down the road. But during that time when Jillian really couldn't work, um, later she finally did work at a coffee shop and get a librarian job. Uh, one summer, her and a friend went over to Prague, Czech Republic, just to get away from the heat. And when she came back, she told me this vision she had of, she'd heard of this uh, online space called Etsy, and she had already been taking some classes silversmithing because she couldn't really do anything else. So she t presented this vision to me of, taking her writing and her photography because she grew up doing photography and making jewelry and starting this little online shop. And as soon as she told me, like I was on board. So I grabbed Jillian, threw her in the car, drove into Parker and we went to the radio shack and we paid, I think 150 bucks for just a small digital camera. And you know, it's funny now looking back cause like I was saying, we were making all sorts of sacrifices I can't believe we even did it, but I had it all on the wall. We had a $200 month budget at that point because uh -huh. I was saving almost the vast majority of my money. So like, you know, $150 camera when we're trying to live on 200 a month is, you know, a huge purchase. So uh, yeah, I took her into Radio Shack. We bought that. We came back and uh, yeah, we, we just del delved right into it. But like I was right on board from the very beginning uh, with, with the vision and then very, you know, right there along the whole way, trying to be supportive and also, you know, helping just get things set up. There's a whole lot of just infrastructure and helping Jillian get things going, problem solving those kind of issues. So what was the original vision for no the Noisy Plume uh, compared to what it has evolved into today? You know, I think the original vision, like I said, was recognizing Jillian's talents, mm -hmm. which were making jewelry, photography, and writing, coupling those in a way 
uh, and couple those with telling our life story in an honest manner um, to sell jewelry ultimately. But like, uh, and I think the key thing from the very beginning, it was we want to tell our story and we want to be unique through honesty. And what I kind of mean by that is, you know, we don't want to cater to what uh, maybe people expect and we don't want to create an online space or tell a story that uh, is going to offend or that's, that's not our goal, but we also want to be unique in that we're honest and we're not placating people. Like this is honestly our lifestyle. This is honestly the life and hopefully it's unique because we are being honest and people appreciate it. So, you know, from the very beginning, Jillian was just, if you go look at her blog, the original shots are us harvesting fish, bird hunting, it's, it's just the lifestyle that we were living at that point. But that part of the business hasn't ever changed. The part of uh, presenting our lifestyle in an honest, unique, and honest way and uh, capitalizing on Jillian's gifts. So that part's never changed. We have evolved over the years uh, just in different little areas as far as there's been times when Jillian's been drawn towards, you know, really going into photography or different realms and had to pull back in certain asset areas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I've always encouraged her and we've talked a lot about is you never want to like cut your foundation out. And like what has made the noisy plume the noisy plume is just great storytelling that's honest and unique and sincere and beautiful jewelry. And so, you know, we, we, we've never wanted to cut that foundation out because that's what uh, her supporters and all of us have come to expect. Yeah, I think from my outsider's perspective, it seems like the, 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 your competitive advantage, if you're just thinking about strictly business is the, the honesty and that it is, it is completely, um, completely legitimate. You know, a lot of people have these curated social media feeds, but a lot of it is just kind of BS or, or the high points, or it's just so, um, kind of contrived that it's very, it's very obvious that it's not real life. Whereas Jillian and you and Jillian have this talent for, um, kind of, uh, showing, showing all aspects of it. And I've, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I have a really high BS meter when it comes to some of this online stuff. And I feel like you're the way you guys present everything seems so authentic. And then after my conversation with Jillian and now my conversation with you, it's, you know, you guys are the real deal, which is, I think is rare in this world of everybody trying to be kind of a mini celebrity online. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and that's exactly what I, you just phrased it way better than I did. But like what I meant by our goal of telling our story and being honest. And, and the funny part is, is by being honest, uh, it suddenly becomes unique and different than everybody else. And even though that just as a result of being honest, and not shying away from like, oh, we're not going to show hunting photos because a lot of people who might buy jewelry will be offended by that. But on the other hand, not going out of our way to like uh, offend anybody either, mm-hmm. but just truly presenting life as it is. So why are you not on social media? I think I probably know the answer, but why? why? The reason I, because I'm a doer, I have my whole life, I've have a hundred different things I want to do. Like I'm terrible at like sitting still. If I have a day, I'll go hunt five days a week or I'll have a project. So I've just never started. Yeah. There's just always so many other things I want to do. I think that's good. I mean, I think um, it seems that, that Jillian uses it, uses it as a tool and it doesn't use her. You know, I think um, I love the, the, 
you know, how she responds to emails when it's time to respond to emails. And it's not like she's staring at her phone all day. So it seems that, that you guys have managed to figure that out, which I think is a, is a huge uh, success in this day and age with all the money that's being spent by these companies to make people addicted to this stuff. Yeah. And I don't know if Julian actually likes social media, but, uh, yeah, well, she does, but you know, it's, she does it. And I, and I probably help balance it out cause I'm the complete extreme. I don't have, or even know how to use Facebook or any social media. Cause so yeah, I, I probably hopefully balance that out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about Jillian's, you know, had this, this dream for, for her career. And then at some point your dream of being a smoke jumper probably came back into the equation. Can you talk a little bit about when that really came back up and how you and Jillian kind of worked together to make that a reality? Well, after our time in, Arizona at the fish hatchery. And I, I, like I said, I love that job and was having a great time, but I kind of get restless. So I wanted the next challenge and I wanted to go back to fire because like I said, when I was in high school, I had decided I wanted to be a smoke jumper. So I ended up applying for a well, smoke jumping, but also a lot of hotshot jobs. And I only applied to hotshot jobs and hotshots are another type of firefighter. Uh, they're big crews of 20 people. And they uh, go to probably, you know, the most arduous sections of like big fires. So I applied to hotshot crews only in Montana and Idaho because another one of my goals I had was, okay, I've done a lot of fishing. I'm doing a lot of bird hunting. I really want to get into big game hunting. So I was looking at states that, at least from hunting perspective, were very uh, liberal hunting states and that there are a lot of options for a hunter. Sure. So I was looking at Montana and Idaho and ended up getting hired by a hotshot crew in Pocatello, Idaho. And so we ended up moving up here, buying our first house in Pocatello uh, so I could pursue my dream of being a hotshot. And, you know, we also got out of the desert. And then down the road, I ended up deciding I still wanted to make the next step. I needed to get the hotshot experience to be a jumper. And a couple of years down the road, I got hired in North Cascades, Winthrop, Washington, to be a smoke jumper. And, you know, Jillian was incredibly supportive during all of this. You know, she stayed in Pocatello, ran the place, uh, while I'd go out to Winthrop, Washington, take our trailer, our Airstream trailer out there, live out there for the summer. And we kind of had these two different lives for half the year. Uh, but, yeah, she, she was incredibly supportive in helping me, helping me follow my dream, too. So – when you got accepted, first question, had you ever jumped out of an airplane before? And then second, can you talk a little bit about the training when you're a rookie? How do they prepare you for this crazy thing? I had never jumped out of airplane and it's not really helpful if you have, yeah, because you, uh, you know, they're going to totally retrain you and uh, you're going to get totally trained anyways. Um, you know, the hardest part about smoke jumping is getting hired. Once you, you know, you manage to get hired, then you know, if as a good candidate or a rookie, as we call them, you know, it's really your duty to do everything you can do to prepare for rookie training because that position that, you know, I was taking or any rookies taking, there's dozens and dozens of other really qualified people who aren't getting an opportunity because I took it. So, you know, as soon as I got hired, it was nonstop. Uh, you know, I had a whole schedule. I'm pretty, I do really well if I get a schedule and stuff. So I had, you know, my six day a week schedule between running, carrying weight, and all the different areas of how I thought the best to prepare. 
but I didn't know what the training was. Like, unlike a lot of guys, I never had known a smoke jumper, so I had no idea how to prepare, but I went into full on training mode. Thank God I didn't actually hurt myself because I'd probably pushing myself too far. <laughs> um, yeah, just my whole life revolved around training. And then uh, the first day you show up to training and, you know, you meet guys are all really nervous. And most rookie training lasts, it just depends, but probably five weeks is average. And, you know, every base was nine smoke jumper bases in the U.S. And they all kind of have their own variations on the training. But they're all fairly similar in that the first couple weeks is going to be, you know, it's going to be a hell week where they're going to do everything they can to make guys quit um, and just see how bad you really want to be there. And so those first uh, couple weeks are going to be just pretty much nonstop running calisthenics. Uh, you, you put on your smoke jumper outfit a ton, which is this huge outfit made of Kevlar and padding like a football outfit. Yeah. You're doing all this running all over the place and you have to run everywhere. You can't walk anywhere. And so you're running all over the place in that and it's, 90 degrees out there so you're overheating um so you're doing all that crazy stuff and then there'll be a huge pack out typically and maybe an overnight type excursion uh so that first week is just all about making guys quit and you know depending on the year and or the class you know it's probably i would say probably you know 35 you know over 30 percent is a typical washout some years it's well over it's up to 50 or higher wow and then, you know, these are the top, these are the guys that, like I said, the top candidates. So there, there's always a fairly high washout rate. But after you make it through this first couple of weeks, then the training's going to, it's still going to be really hard. It never lets up the intensity, but it's going to start to focus a little bit more on the, the jumping aspect of it. And, you know, when smoke jumpers come to the training, it's kind of already expected that they'll at least know how to firefight. So all the training revolves around the actual parachuting and, you know, the different components of parachuting, which are, you know, parachute manipulation, steering the parachute, landing the parachute, rolling, and then actually jumping out of the airplane or the exit. So you work on those different parts and there's a towers or these uh, mock simulation areas and you will just do these procedures over and over and over and over. And so by the time you actually jump out of the plane, it's kind of just automatic. Like you've done it, it practice so many times. It's just, an, it's just an automatic thing. And also throughout all of this training, there's lots of different components of smoke jumping. So the guys are also learning, uh, you know, how to build paracargo, which is all the supplies we need when we get on a fire. So they're working on all those different facets. Tree climbing is another huge part of smoke jumping because, you know, if a parachute lands in a tree or your gear lands in a tree, you have to get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, There'll be tons of tree climbing, and honestly, tree climbing is probably the scariest thing. Or we're, if people are going to struggle, like if they make it past the physical part, it's probably going to be tree climbing, not the jumping. Really? Uh, it's, it's just because you're low enough to the ground that uh, it's pretty daunting, you know, when you're 100 feet in a tree and you can see the, the ground right there. Sure. Versus like, you know, an airplane, you're so high, it's like, oh, look at the cute little farm down there. <laughs> so it just has a totally different feel. Uh and there's a bunch of different traditions that are thrown all throughout the training. It depends on the base. So uh, like where I jump out of now, McCall, there's all sorts of uh, different dinners, like different traditions where the class from the previous year will throw the rookies a dinner and uh, tell them some of the expectations that are needed. They'll put on a whole another uh, yeah, night where they kidnap all the rookies and they take them out and 
tell them kind of what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's expected and talk about the history of the base to get them excited about that. So there's a lot of different initiation and, uh, traditions that are also going to it, you know, with the hope or the hopefully results with guys feeling a real sense of accomplishment and part of something when it's all over. And it's pretty neat. Uh, and it's something that I really want to get even involved more in because, you know, most of these guys that go through the training, you know, up to that point, it's it's the most meaningful or important thing of their life up to that point. Sure. And so it's pretty neat to be part of something like that. Yeah, the- definitely. Um, I mean, it sounds it sounds so much like uh, elite military training, the, the little bit that I know about it um, as far as the trying to get people to quit and the intensity of it and the, the bonds that are formed. Um so this is a, the question I know everybody wants to hear, but what's the, what's the scariest thing that's happened to you when you've been out there fighting these fires or jumping out of planes to, to fight fires? You know, I don't really think of my job as very risky. I, and maybe it's just perception because I do it just like uh, when you, when you compare to smoke jumping to elite military, like I'm like sitting here like, Oh, it's pretty easy. I don't think it's that bad, but it's maybe just my own perception. So I don't really, think of it as a very risky occupation. I think that's what uh, pros do. I, I heard an interview with a, a NASCAR driver the other day, um, a really elite NASCAR driver who was saying, I don't think it's risky at all. I, I you know, and that's cause they've been, they train their ass off like you have, you know, it's, and that's why you're If, if you realize how risky it was, you wouldn't be able to do it. You'd be freaking guess, out. Well, and I've kind of compared it to, um, like motorcycle driving where you hear a lot of people say, Oh, if you drive a motorcycle, you will die, which to me is preposterous. It's like, no, 90% of fatalities happen when you take curves too fast. If you're just smart, you can eliminate a lot of the risk. And it's the same thing with smoke jumping. Uh, and you, we train so much to it that if you do things properly, a lot of the risk is eliminated. Now, granted, if you were to start landing with the wind, uh, because, you know, say our parachute can go 10 miles an hour forward, um, and I'm actually going with the wind, and the wind's 20 miles an hour, I'm going 30 miles an hour. So then oh, I'd be no. landing at 30 miles an hour. So there's things like that you can really mess yourself up with if you're just not being smart. So I'm sorry, I got really sidetracked. What was the question? <laughs> what was the scariest thing that has happened to you while you've been doing this? The scariest thing I've done isn't actually the, the smoke jumping or the, the firefighting. It's tree climbing, like I was saying. And um, when I worked in Washington, and this is another thing I love about smoke jumping, it's kind of like um, – one of the last spots, particularly in the government, where it's just you, you take capable people and you just let them do it. So in northwest Washington, there was a bunch of tree topping projects. And so what the goal was is there's these areas of timber and they're trying to create snags. So the only people that can get to do this snag creation are smoke jumpers because we're trained with climbing. So I remember one job specifically where it was me and three other guys and I'm not a great climber, but I love this about smoke jumping. The base where I was working said, hey, Rob and this fellow Jeremy, we need you two to go lead this project. So we took two other guys and we had to top 150 trees. And shoot, I'm not that great at it, but it just we had to survive and figure it out. And the scariest thing about tree climbing or tree topping, I should say, is, you know, these trees are maybe 150 feet tall, maybe higher. And so you're climbing up to two thirds the height of the tree and then you're topping the top third off of it. And that entire time, I'm never really scared, but I'm totally 100% focused, like more than I am on anything else. Because 
there's no room for air. When you climb up that tree and you put your face cut in it, which is like you take a pie wedge out of it, mm-hmm. and then you put your back cut, which is the backside cut to make it fall, you are strapped to that tree. So if there's anything that goes wrong, if that tree decides to set back or like fall the wrong direction, or if you have ropes hanging down and a branch is going to catch it, you know, anything, there's no room for air, absolutely no room. So it, you're just on edge the entire time and you're climbing that tree. And when you do that final back cut and you see it actually falling, it's the best feeling ever. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm not going to die <laughs> going over. And just because of the efficiency of it, like, you know, we had to do 150 trees and I've done several projects like that. Uh, you know, you get, you maybe climb up to the branches and you have lanyards, which you wrap around the tree and the branches. But if you're going to make any progress, you can't always have a lanyard attached to the tree. You just have to free climb it because it would take hours. So that's just the, all of tree climbing is like one wrong mistake and it's not going to work out well for you. And so that's the scary, that's definitely the scariest thing I've done or the thing that's put me on the edge the most. And one day of tree topping, I'm exhausted and yeah, it's like, oh, but it also feels great. Yo, they say that um, commercial like commercial tree cutting or tree trimming is one of the most dangerous jobs you can have. That that book, Seba- uh, the author Sebastian Younger, you know, that wrote Perfect Storm. He yeah. uh, when he came up with the idea for Perfect Storm, he was in the hospital because he'd had an accident climbing a tree as you know as a as a commercial tree tree cutter. And he was sitting there in the hospital. He's thinking, I wonder what other jobs are just as dangerous as this. And he came up with commercial fishermen. And that's where that book came from. Um, Oh, speaking of Sebastian Younger, I'm sure people listening to this podcast are sick of hearing me talk about this. But have you read Tribe by Sebastian Younger? No. It's it's about 150 pages. It's really good. But it's about kind of the the bonds that come between men or men and women from having – community and having purpose and he talks a lot about the military and how these guys come back from from uh you know being deployed overseas and they have such a hard time and have these ptsd and uh symptoms and some of them that had the ptsd didn't even see any violent combat um and his theory is that it's because they don't when they come home from the military they don't you know they were in this position in the military where they had a tight group of people and each one of them were watching each other's back. They were all working towards this shared goal. And then they come home and they're living in some apartment by themselves and they don't have any real purpose. And that's what causes the emotional um, wounds. And so I was wondering when you come back, when you're done with a, a summer of fighting fires and you come back, do you have any sort of withdrawal from that? I mean, do you miss it? Is it, is it, uh, do you get, get down at all from, from not having that adrenaline rush? I do not miss it because I have a hundred different things I love to do. Like I love hunting. That purpose, I, mean, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I put all, you know, hunt 70, 80 days a year. I love hunting. I love working on projects, running the farm. So there's always so many other things I want to be doing. So I don't have that issue, um, but I think some guys probably do miss it, and I totally relate with the book you're talking about because it is, I think, what to me the most powerful part about smoke jumping that I care about is the community, mm-hmm. uh, and we call it it's like the bro mentality is what we call it, and I think anybody who smoke jumps that's what they end up missing when they leave is just the community, uh, and because you, you're especially your rookie bros that you went through agony together with. And you've looked out for each other all these years. 
And uh, you just know they're always there for you. And I think, well, I know because when people um, who have retired come back and come to reunions, you know, they talk about like their year of smoke jumping is the best years of their life because of that community they had. Yeah, I completely agree. I've I've gone on some long, like high altitude mountaineering trips, like up in Alaska and South America. And, you know, the, the bonds you form with the people on those trips, you're there for three weeks or whatever, but I've, I feel like I've got closer relationships with some of those people you share a rope with and you share a tent with for three weeks and you suffer with, and they're going to be the one to pull you out of a crevasse if you fall in. I feel like those bonds are tighter and more meaningful than bonds that I've had with people I've known for 25 years. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, exactly. I agree. That's a good book. You'd, you'd really like it. I, people, I, I bet I talk about it every day and people are probably really sick of it, but everybody needs to read it. Um, man, we're all, we've already been going an hour, which is insane. And I've still got a million questions to ask. Maybe we'll, we'll need to do a part. Two. We'll do a part two with you and Jillian together. Oh, the couple, the couple. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, let me one one question, one more question about forest um, fires. One thing I want to talk about, but we're not going to have time, is the just the the management of national forest and public land in the, in the West. Um, are there any books about forest fighting? I mean, forest fire fighting. You mentioned Young Men in Fire, or any about just how about managing the federal um, approach to managing forest or anything related to forest fires that you that have been meaningful to you and you'd recommend. Well, you know, The Big Burn is a great Oh, that's book a great one. On, on, you know, on the history of the Forest Service and firefighting to a little bit. But yeah, I think that's a great book as far as the history and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so I think anybody who works for the Forest Service is obligated to read that. As far as like firefighting specific, you know, Young Men in Fire, which you mentioned, which I like the first quarter of that book, because uh, that's kind of the interesting part. And then when it gets into the whole forensics of, I get a little bored by the 200 pages of forensics work at the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. That first part of it. And there's not really many other, uh, books. There's a few books I could tell you about, but I don't know if I'd really recommend, but they are about smoke jumping. No, we're, um, we're only looking for the, the good recommendations from the pros. <laughs> um, Oh, and speaking of books, are there any good biology books or ecology books that have, that have been impactful to you in your career as a, as a biologist? Yeah, you know, there's a couple. I, I mean, a couple of the obvious ones I like because I really like a naturalist essay kind of format. So, you know, obviously any of John Muir's writing I think is outstanding, or Annie Dillard. They kind of both write in that same way. So I love I love both those authors. But somebody you probably haven't ever heard of, uh, who I should just full disclosure is actually my uncle. But uh, there's a book that he wrote called Seeing Nature. Mm-hmm. It's Paul Crefel, and I think it's in that same line of John Muir and Andy Dillard where it's kind of talks about his adventures and by the end of it, it's helping especially young people just have tools to appreciate nature and see relationships in it and just to become better observers. And yeah, I think that, and that's an outstanding book that I think, yeah, especially high schoolers or younger, younger guys should really, really read because it's, Talks about you know his all of his personal adventures, but really just interesting observations and how to see things. Like I can remember one example he's talking about when he's floating the Yukon, and how islands are actually, you know, moving upriver because of the eroding and then the deposition. So it's just a really neat, neat book that way. 
That's cool. You know, I wish in school and in high school and college they would make you read books like that versus the stuff they do make you read. Because I I used to hate reading. I mean, I hated it and I I, I never got anything out of it. But now, you know, probably in my late 20s, I've just got obsessed with it. And I feel like these books can be just so powerful in changing your perspective and maybe changing long-held beliefs that you thought you knew. And and I just think it's such a powerful tool. And it seems to me it's such a... um, I don't know, such a waste to, to have all these young people reading books that mo- I'd say 90% are not inspired by. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I've got some, um, some quick questions that I've asked. I asked your wife and I ask everybody else, and I'd love to run them by you and get your, your answers on these. Um, cause it's really cool to, to kind of compare all the answers. And every time I, I learned something new, your wife, every book she recommended, I'd never heard of. So that was, I think that was the first time that had happened. Um, so do you have any just overall favorite books? I guess Typhoon would be towards the top of the list, but any any books on any subject that have been uh, important in your life and that you'd recommend everybody should read? Yeah, well, you mentioned Typhoon and Seeing Nature I just talked about. But, you know, specific to the West, um, my good our good friends in Arizona actually gave me these books for my birthday one time. Have you ever heard of Little Britches by Ralph Moody? I have not. Oh, these are outstanding. So one of my all-time favorite book series is like the Laura Ingle Wilder mm-hmm. series. And I know they're juvenile, but I love them. Oh, no, uh, I read those. We, we have a version of those from my, that I read to my daughter. Uh, actually, a podcast guest, Sarah King, sent them to me. I, they're awesome. Oh, yeah, I've made a pilgrimage to Day Smith, South Dakota, and in Kansas. I, yeah, I, those are very influential in my life. But Ralph Moody Little Britches is, especially if anybody lives in Denver or in Colorado, because it's, it's kind of the boy's version of that Lorian Wilder story where it's a young guy, kid, he's like six or seven, and they live just on the outskirts of Denver, but at that point there's nothing there. It's just they're ranchers, and his dad dies, and it's just all his true autobiography. And there's about nine books of him just growing up, going on cattle drives when he's 13 years old, and just it's incredible, like that pioneer spirit uh, where this kid's like 17 and he's um, – chipping out a living, doing random things. He ends up going to Arizona and riding stunt horses for the movies that are being made. And it just, yeah, it's a great, great uh, series in the line of like the little house books, but specific to Colorado. Cool. And yeah, those are neat. And then also, you know, the other stories I absolutely love are Zane Gray, all of his outdoor stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of his autobiography his work, um, yeah, I think those are outstanding too. You know, because he pioneered all of the uh, big sea fishing. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, I mean, he, he was a pioneer in all of that. So all of his journals from his fishing and all of his outdoor stories when he was in Arizona roping lions and they were catching him to do experiments on. So he's got some fabulous uh, outdoor stories, just his true his true stories. Very so those, cool. Those are top of mind. Yeah, those are great. Those are great. I'll have links to those. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Well, my favorite fire movie, which anybody in fire will probably be appalled to say this, is Always. Uh, you know, 1989, uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Oh, yeah. I remember that movie. <laughs> I haven't seen that. it. Yeah, it, oh, I love it. And it's about, you know, the uh, bomber pilot. And I actually saw that when I was a kid. This is critical to why I wanted to get in fire, too. I remember the song when smoke gets in your eyes and Holly Hunter wears this white dress that uh, 
she's given and she has this quote of saying, girl clothes, it's not the dress, it's the way you see me. And like, I love that scene, I love that dress. And I've actually spent hours, Jillian knows this, I stalked the whole internet trying to find that white dress uh-huh. or something similar to buy for Jillian. So yeah, that's just kind of a funny one out there. Um, they don't make good movies like they did in the mid '80s anymore. Yeah, exactly. The best movie of all time is Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. Oh yeah, I, don't worry. I watched that with the uh, my smoked jumper brothers a lot. Oh yeah, that's that's motivation, man. That's that oh, yeah, is hands exactly. down the best movie ever made. Yeah. <laughs> then I get. Have you seen Smoke Jumper? Not. I'm sorry. Um, Smoke Signals. No, I have not. Oh, that's it's early '90s too, but that's a great movie too. And it, I, I relate with it a lot because Jillian and I lived on an Indian reservation. Mm-hmm. So Smoke Signals, I remember when it came out, how they presented it was a movie made for Indians by Indians starring Indians. So it's all on the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation. Oh, cool. And because it's made by them, produced by them, starred by Native Americans, like they poke fun of themselves in a way that like an outsider couldn't do. Sure. And it's, it's quite funny. So I love that one too. Nice. I'll I'll uh, I'll add that I haven't seen that but that sounds good. Um, so you've got all these hobbies and passions and all this purpose um, that you're following. Are there any unexpected weird hobbies you have? Like, do you watch Real Housewives of Atlanta on TV or anything like that? Can't say I've seen that, but uh, I don't know. If it's, I doubt it's a surprise, but uh, you know, I love gardening and. Uh, tending things sure so you know i'm passionate about gardening and my buddy jeremy and i when i was at north cascades we we were the lead gardeners there and had the you know out of this jumper bases you know we had the prize winning garden every year i was there uh so you know there's a lot of passion i I really enjoy gardening you know i'm a huge dolly parton fan i like are you really oh yeah i love her dolly yeah that counts that cow was not expecting that that you were expecting that okay there we go yeah dolly's awesome Cool. Um, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And you've had a, a lot of them, I'm sure, but it could be scary. It could be funny. Um, just an impactful experience that when you think back, you're like, wow, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Well, I don't know if this is the most powerful, but one that popped into my mind is, uh, I don't know, several years ago as, as a great group, it was pretty much all my rookie bros guys that I went through the training together. We jumped a fire in Olympic national park. So, you know, it's, it's a rainforest out there and I'm with some of the best guys in the world and we jumped this fire out there and what we were told later by the managers of the park is, you know, this is a fire that happens once every couple thousands of years. I mean, the rainforest does not burn. So this is like a one in a thousand year fire and the valley we were in is the uh, same valley that has the largest dug fir in all of Washington. So it's massive trees. All these trees, you know, are 10 feet plus diameter, huge, huge trees like, you know, sequoias or they look like it. Yeah. Massive trees. And like I said, this is like a once in a thousand year event happening and we're fighting this fire. And so it's a rainforest, which is burning, which is just really, really unique because you have the moss and the uh, ferns munching away slowly. And what really sticks out of my mind is nonstop is sleeping all night and these huge trees, all those massive, massive trees falling over all night. Because, you know, the roots are burning out and because it's a rainforest, it's a shallow root system. So as that would burn, the duff would burn, they'd all fall over. Wow. And those massive, massive trees, you know, everyone would fall. It would shake the entire ground and feel like a earthquake. And so it was just nonstop when you're laying there, just boom and shake, shake, shake. 
that really has stuck with me as a pretty neat experience. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And that's a cool part of the world too. That, that rainforest with those trees. I spent some time there and, um, it's just, uh, that whole area up there is just beautiful. Um, cool. Um, what is your favorite location in the West? You've seen a lot. Is there one that sticks out as being your favorite? Well, a couple areas I really, I really like, you know, growing up, there was a canyon on the American River in, you know, California called Royal Gorge, which I still is, I think, one of my favorite spots, just in that it's like a 2,000-foot drop into this canyon. So it's really remote, and at the bottom of it, there's just all sorts of abandoned mining equipment and, you know, old wheelbarrows and, uh, yeah, great fishing. So I love that spot. It's just growing up, that was like my go-to spot I wanted to always go to. And then, you know, a lot of the spots I really like revolve around hunting or just spots I know really well. So, you know, we're in South Central Idaho. So one of the fa- my favorite spots are the Bennett Hills, which is a small little range between the Snake River Plain and the Big Mountains between Fairfield and uh, Twin Falls, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that little range, because I'm up there so much checker hunting, I, you know, I'll be up there five days a week. I absolutely love it because it's just these really, really remote canyons and really neat like hoodoo rocks everywhere. And it's so remote that, you know, you'll see tons of mule deer because it's wintering grounds, elk everywhere. And nobody's out there. Like, I never saw a single hunter or anybody out there all year. And, you know, I'll be out there, you know, 60 days a year. Um, Never see a soul out there. Occasionally, I might run into a trapper out there. But, yeah, I, I, I love it. But there's a lot of spots like that. But to me, I love it so much because I know it so well. It's where I'm at all the time. Yeah, that's being able to really know a place. It's like we were talking about with with um, just being outdoors and, and just really um, spending time and hours and hours, days and days, and days in, in a specific place. There's there's no substitute for that. Um, you can really establish these really cool bonds with these places. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Does anything come to mind? Well, it's hard to be just like treat others like you'd like to be treated. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Ways. Um, I do remember my dad telling me before I left for college or somewhere when I was in my teens, he told me, just be a friend to the friendless and you'll always have friends. And uh, that's really worked out for me. It's, you know, I just, if, if you just go to the guy who doesn't have friends, you know, everybody wants friends. So it's a good way to treat people and you're never lonely. That's great. I've never heard that before. I think that's great. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that from you and your dad, if that's all right. Um, and so last, last question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast and they're people who love the American West in in one way or another, whether that's through their hobbies of hunting and fishing or through their work in conservation or ranching, um, some are artists, if you could make a request or offer some words of wisdom to these folks, what would that be? I don't think I really have a request or any words of wisdom. It would just be, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. Like I'm just always really flattered or humbled and thankful that first of all, anybody would want to even hear me talk. <laughs> I know like, the feeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, people listen to your podcast. I mean, it's flattering. It's crazy. Yeah. People will want to hear me talk or hear what I have to say. And so I'm just incredibly appreciative. Not only to all the opportunities I've had my whole life, you know, getting to do different things, become a smoke jumper, work with great people, 
So I'm just incredibly appreciative for the opportunities I've had, but also as we've developed Jillian's business and our own little life, anybody who cares about us or wants to support us, you know, just through being friends or in any capacity, it's just humbling and, uh, yeah, humbling and I'm very thankful. And a lot of what we do wouldn't even happen if it wasn't for the people making it happen who support us. So. You guys, I'll tell you, after releasing Jillian's podcast last week, it's, it's absolutely amazing, the the community you guys have built um, and the the just kind of loyal following and the respect that people have for the way you guys are living your life. It's It's been really, really neat to see from my perspective. Um, and normally this is the, the time of the podcast when I ask people, how, how can people connect with you online? But you're one of the few lucky people that that is not really an option. So... <laughs> I say connect, connect with Jillian, right? Go to Jillian. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. This was great. And again, we, we really may have to do part two because we want to scratch the surface here. All righty. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperry.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.